Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the in-house podcast of the McDonald Laurie Institute. I'm Aaron Woodrick, the director of the Domestic Policy Program. We're going to talk today about a very interesting piece that appeared in the online publication The Hub. It's about the protest, the convoy protest, which is obviously all over the news these days. And to talk about that piece was written by a fellow named Stuart Parker. He's the president of the Los Altos Institute in Vancouver. Welcome, Stuart. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Yeah, Stuart, I, you know, maybe we should start. I'd like you to maybe introduce yourself, talk a bit about who you are and the institute you work for. Sure. I mean, I've uh, been doing um, left-wing politics in British Columbia since the mid-80s when I was in my teens. I guess on the BC left, I'm sort of like Gary Coleman, that kid who was on different strokes. I was a beloved child star who's gone on to an adult life of failed comebacks and dubious projects. One of the bright lights in the many failures, however, is Los Altos Institute. So we're a small socialist think tank. We run reading groups. We run courses. We run a movie group. We do different kinds of work to offer a zero-barrier discussion, university-level instruction to people on from a socialist perspective in B.C., of course, these days, I think some people probably refer to our institute as alt-right, because that's apparently what you become if you dissent from what we might call the progressive orthodoxy or the identitarian orthodoxy. Out there with people like Jimmy Dore, Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, other people who have tried to hold on to what I might characterize as 20th century left values in the present. So that's where we're situated. And so every day we look out at the world and discover who people think we are today because we're trying to defend a politics that uh, unfortunately is shrinking. Yeah, it, li- listen, and it's fascinating. I, I First of all, I certainly don't think that you've been a failure. You're obviously here on the MLI podcast, and I mean, what could be a greater height of achievement, right? Uh, I kid, of course, but you've written a piece in The Hub that I caught a lot, got a lot of attention because you really made an interesting case. As you said, you sort of laid out your credentials as being on the left, yet you really sort of leapt to the defense of the convoy protest. This was sort of at the first weekend that they'd manifested, and you made a really powerful argument about how it was really unfair fair to judge essentially a gathering of 10,000 people because of a few bad actors, because of very few prominent, clearly bad actors. I'm just wondering if you could sort of explain why you felt compelled to do that and sort of how your own history of protest and experience and sort of having that done to you from a left-wing standpoint made you realize that, uh, that this was a real problem. Well, so this idea that because Sons of Odin or the Proud Boys are there to radicalize and recruit, this is a very recognizable thing on the left, right? The left has always had to contend with the Communist Party of Canada, the Marxist-Leninist Party of Canada, which in many ways are organizations that are essentially fan organizations for foreign dictators, right? In the 20th century, used to be able to compensate their members each holidays to visit those dictatorships. And every anti-war rally that we've seen in Vancouver in the past 10 years or whatever, there's been the Communist Party flying its Communist Party of China flags and handing out literature defending the Uyghur genocide in Western China. When we had the peace marches in Vancouver, of course, at the height of the anti-war movement in the 80s, everybody was there, right, to recruit, to radicalize. 
Back then, of course, the Marxist-Leninists were aligned with the Enver Hoxha dictatorship, horrific dictatorship in Albania that engaged in mass torture. And so this is something that large, diverse protests on the political left have always had. Whatever flaws I might find in right-wing media, and goodness knows there are a lot of flaws, or whatever flaws I might find in what we might term the mainstream media, uh, there's never an attempt to suggest that these large protests were to be defined by support for the Uyghur genocide or the Hoxha dictatorship or the CPCML's current support of North Korea. That was viewed as dirty pool. And as people on the left, we should be especially experienced with what extremist, heavily branded radicals do at your event. They try to make it more violent. They try to make it more confrontational. And they try to give people there the impression that they need to take a more radical position. That's what they're there to do, and they're there to sign members up. And that's just a phenomenon if you lead a successful event that is actually a mass mobilization where everybody who wants to come, comes out. And so I was shocked that people attempted to tar all these individuals as Nazis, as Klansmen. Because first of all, that's carrying out the agenda of the far right, doing that. Saying to somebody, no, you really are a Nazi, trust me. No, you're not welcome in mainstream Canadian society. No, you're not a real citizen. That serves only the most extreme organizations to adopt that position. Whether if, if people on the left seeing themselves as progressive want to disagree with that movement, why not do it in a way that welcomes truckers into your movement, that invites truckers to adopt your views? I don't think dreaming Nazi, Nazi, Nazi at somebody is going to move them closer to your views. But such approaches are becoming more common among progressives, which are becoming a community that is increasingly interested in maintaining its membership, maintaining its support through fear-based tactics or through intimidation. And I think that's what we're seeing now. I think that somehow naive people have got it into their heads that pointing at somebody and screaming Nazi at them is somehow a useful political act. So, I mean, and it sounds like what you're saying with, is you say any successful uh, protest is going to attract crazies. It's like there's always going to be some nuts in the jar, and that's just unavoidable wherever you sit on the spectrum, and that should sort of be baked in to people's expectations. You talk a little bit about how this approach didn't used to work, but it seems to be increasingly working. Has there been a real change in expectations either in the media or amongst the public that to treat these sort of large nebulous protests in the same way we would expect the leader of a political party to control all their members or the, you know, the leader of a business to be responsible for other members. We're, we're sort of putting a level of expectation of control and sort of weeding out the bad eggs on an entity or a movement that doesn't really have like a centralized structure or chain of command that could actually carry those sorts of things out? Yeah, and you raise a good point in linking a point I made in my article with a point I've made in other writing, which is that, yes, Canadians especially 
more so I would say than people in any other developed country have since the 1990s come to value control as a more and more important social value. It's one of the reasons only moderate populists do well in Canada. It's one of the reasons that populism, I think, is a less effective political strategy here than pretty much anywhere else in the first world. And it comes from this belief we began trending towards in the 90s when we began not just accepting, but calling for higher and higher levels of centralized control over a party's candidates. It used to be in the 20th century that political party leaders were understood to be like orchestral conductors, right? That you had these different parts of the party that did different parts of the harmony, said different things, and the job was to keep these diverse organizations all on the same page by magnifying the sound of one group, dampening the other, and then doing the reverse. And so having a diverse caucus, having people who questioned the leader in caucus, having people who voted against the government, the party sometimes in caucus, was a perfectly ordinary thing until very recently. Garth Turner, Sven Robinson, all sorts of MPs were known for that kind of thing in the 20th century. But um, because of how we handled the abortion question in Canada, we created a situation where we didn't agree to not legislate on abortion. We agreed to not let abortion come up in Parliament. And that meant a very, very high level of control was expected. And this is, of course, contemporaneous with the rise of what we might term the de facto morals clause in everybody's contract at work. Now, of course, this is a global trend, right? A thing that we call cancel culture. I mean, cancel culture wouldn't mean anything if it were just people being disapproved of by 16-year-old virgins on Twitter, which is mostly what the first stage of cancellation or neo-McCarthyism is. The problem is that human resources and personnel committees at our workplaces listen to these virgins on Twitter and take shockingly authoritarian action. So we've become used to the idea that not just that a political party leader is responsible for controlling the views and statements of their every MP and increasingly of every member of the party, every rank and file member. And similarly, globally, we're moving towards this idea that um, employers have to keep their employees singing from the same ideological songbook. And we get absurd situations like, you know, Amy Hamm, the nurse in British Columbia, where both her union and the BC, um, the professional body regulating nurses, are essentially trying to have her removed from her position as a nurse, because she's expressed an unorthodox political view. So I think one of the things about this protest that shocked people was the fact that the people running it were genuine populists. They had no interest or capacity to control the utterances. So, you know, you see, so you get something like Charlie Angus, the MP, 
any person who writes to him in support of the convoy who says something threatening or inappropriate. He views that as being the responsibility of the convoy organizers, even though they may not know the location or name of the person sending him this correspondence. So we've set this impossibly high standard. And one of the reasons I think progressives feel they can do this is that they are less and less willing to do mass mobilization. They're less and less willing to get a big, uncontrolled crowd of new people out there because they do feel it is unseemly that part of this new ethos, that it's more that having a controllable crowd is more important than having a large crowd. We see that reflected in progressive culture. I lived in a conservative community up in Prince George, a neighborhood called Bahark. And when I was living there, it felt fundamentally different than living in a neighborhood full of progressives because people there were certainly just as angry and confused as people everywhere are, as angry and confused as I am, as any sane person would be. But so much of that aggression was directed outwards at other communities. Whereas in progressive communities, I find that there's this cultural shift where people's aggression, their desire to affect change, their criticisms of others are focused on people in their immediate vicinity. And that people have a lot of fear of what we might term social death or ostracism. So part of this is also a culture clash that the political right has gone in a populist direction the political left has gone in a progressive direction. And so what used to distinguish these groups was different theories of the economy or different theories of the power of government, different theories of wealth redistribution. But I would suggest that today it's different theories of control, fundamentally different theories of social control. That is that is fascinating and, you know, a very, very sound cultural observation overall, especially with respect to the affinity for control being a uniquely Canadian phenomenon. And I think you're right. And I think the most concrete example of that is probably the degree of party discipline that we see in Canadian political parties. Right. I mean, we don't see we, we're modeled on the British system. We don't see the same kind of uh, stifling party discipline, even in the United Kingdom. We certainly don't see it in the United States. Yet in Canada, whenever you have and we've just seen this recently with liberal backbench MPs coming out to criticize you know, their own governments, uh, not even the substance of their approach, but the tone and the manner in which they've decided to 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 maximize the polarization around their policies. You know, it seems like the media often focuses on the the fact that there is dissent within the caucus rather than the substantive points that are being made. And it's a phenomenon that I don't see uh, happen in other countries. No, it absolutely does not happen. Right. The Westminster system is designed to tolerate high levels of backbench dissent. We just had 80 MPs standing up for Boris Johnson. If one MP did that in Canada, it would be headlines. And yet we can go back a, a generation and there's Elijah Harper in the Manitoba legislature defying the leader of his party, defying the leader of his national party. Um, Canada, right, uh, there's this um, huge elite consensus in favor of the Meech Lake Constitutional Accord and one indigenous member of the legislature in Manitoba 
is able to redirect all that and not give them a cent for an emergency motion to move through the legislature. And of course, it defeats this major set of constitutional amendments. Elijah Harper was a hero to regular grassroots Canadians who opposed that consensus. But, and now people can't even remember that act of heroism. They've deleted it from their memories that um, this kind of defiance was possible. And we deleted it from our memories because we deleted it from our laws. Elsewhere in the world, the party leader does not have the exclusive power to hire and fire candidates uh, at will at any time. That's a law reform we brought through in 2003. So we really left the path of a regular democracy and began moving towards this managed democracy. People on the left will say, where's Canada's Bernie Sanders? Where's Canada's uh, Ocasio-Cortez, and the, the answer is, well, um, such people are impossible in Canada because no party vetting committee would let them enter a nomination race. In the United States, people can upset the establishment in a primary because the right to be considered for nomination is understood by a right to be American, as a right by Americans, not as a privilege as Canadians have understood it since we changed our laws. There is a kind of grassroots authoritarianism to Canada, a kind of cultural authoritarianism that really, and people compare us, oh, we're presidentializing our system. We're not doing that. This is the Russification of the Canadian system. It is adopting the cultural presumptions that we associate with Russia about concentrating all power in the autocrat and then having power flow out of him to the people who he has delegated as authorities. So I think we saw this culture change at the elite level. And then when it intersected with this international sort of neo-McCarthyism that we now have in our, in our workplaces, I got into an argument about this with an, an environmentalist I've always um always sided with on Twitter, a fellow from the Dogwood Initiative here, he was suggesting that people write down, um, you know, so many of these uh, truckers are owner operators in Ottawa. Technically, they own their own business, even though they're more like Uber drivers, most of them, in that the bank owns the truck and they have a single dispatcher. So they're owner operators largely in name only, most of them. But the idea was, oh, look, the phone numbers and names of those businesses are written on the trucks. We should collect and publicize this information and try and get these truckers blacklisted. So we'll make a list of the people participating in this thing, and then we will go about financially immiserating each of them as an individual. Because that's, a, that's become a normal progressive tactic. The, the people who once were thought to be associated with strikes and this sort of thing have now got the opposite theory of labor, that um, this has become a coalition of snitches and scabs. That's, uh, that's the kind of uh, personality that, um, uh, that progressives have taken on. Uh, people who report you to your boss, who report you to your landlord, 
In the case of my last desk dust-up with progressives, a supporter of mine was reported to the Ministry of Children and Family Development, and they tried to have her kids taken. That's shocking and, and troubling. And perhaps, you know, even more uh, troubling from the way you've laid it out is that this is not this is not something that's fixed easily by sort of change um, at the elite level. It's that the the our elite institutions like the, for example, the way uh, political party leadership is uh, is selected, um, the power that leaders have over their their members and appointing candidates. This is something that's actually been demanded by Canadians at large. And so really the politicians are just sort of giving the crowd what they want. And that what's really troubling is that it seems that for some reason Canadians prefer this to a degree higher than uh, than some of our other peer countries. Yeah, and I, I really saw that during uh, the first uh, the first time with the uh, the prorogation crisis under Harper, how initially progressives backed their own parties, and then they started backing Harper. That they felt that yes, it was reasonable for someone to exercise the power of a majority government without a majority, simply because coming in first was conclusive enough. And that this person should now be the autocrat. And so, right, whipping that up, a lot of a lot of these cultural ideas um, were primarily disseminated um, by our party of the right in the first decade of the century. Uh, now, I don't think that's where conservatives are today, but that they certainly they certainly played a role in forming this national consensus. I think it's that, you know, they got in a little early and they're getting out a little early because they're seeing where all this goes. Uh, But, um, you know, it's really unfortunate because these, um, this approach to the truckers uh, really has uh, produced, I think, the outcomes that uh, Trudeau wanted, uh, which was a small, radicalized um, uh, rump of protesters staying behind, while those who might have feared for their reputation, their ability to stay and work, all that kind of stuff, um, were frightened off by these Klansmen, Nazi uh, accusations, and now the protest is cooked down to uh, increasingly being who the prime minister has wanted it to be this whole time. And of course, you know, the other thing is that the people who are staying are betting more and more. As I said, this is a very indebted sector. There are, I mean, taking that many days off work, especially when there's a shortage of trucks because of the, the blockades and the days off work, you could imagine that a lot of people couldn't take that economic punishment for very long and irrespective of their views are have got to head back in order to support their families so this also leaves the people who either have a high level of economic comfort or more likely are betting the store on uh, on on something happening because of this that they're now out because they have less and less to go back to
Yeah, and they're probably more willing to take drastic, uh, i.e. dangerous action if they're sort of betting everything on it. I mean, no discussion of, of the sort of problems we're in, I think, these days is, is ever complete without touching on, of course, the role of social media, how it impacts things. You've already referenced, you know, the impact of social media on cancel culture and how, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it remains confined to these sort of online bun fights, but once it's sort of it, get, it affects the real world and starts impacting people's livelihoods, their ability to get a job, their their reputation in real life becomes a problem. I mean, is social media, uh, I'm not going to say entirely responsible, but largely responsible for sort of the speed and breadth of which this phenomenon has spread? I have a low opinion of social media's effect on the discourse, uh, but I, I, I think that, um, I think this push towards uh, towards more extreme forms of social control and more extreme forms of surveillance, I don't think that was inevitable. And I think, uh, as we saw in the Cold War, you don't need any particular technology beyond a telephone to run a surveillance society. A lot of it has to do with people's basic values and volunteer work. I think that, right, because that's the challenge to running a surveillance society is you can never have enough government employees to watch everybody. You never have enough government employees to listen to all the phones you've tapped or, you know, whatever it is. So the only way really successful authoritarian societies work is through the volunteer participation of citizens. And I think that what social media has done is it's enabled more people to do that volunteer work of surveillance and reporting. I think there are some larger questions around social media. I think that one of the reasons that Homo sapiens uh, outcompeted Neanderthals and other hominids is that we network our intelligence together better. We do most of our thinking in groups, talking, thinking, coming up with ideas, this is a, as a social activity rather than an individual activity characterizes human intelligence. And I think what we've effectively done with social media is we've, we've allowed our intelligence to be networked by technologies and individuals that have their own agenda that fundamentally corrupt that network, that alter how our thoughts pool and how we exchange those thoughts in order to produce outcomes that they desire. And certainly having a very divided society, a very polarized society of people who are very easy to fire fits in with the plans uh, and the money-making schemes of people in the social media industry and is, I think, a real problem. I think that having these aggregators, having these curated lists of things that were sent in order to keep us critical of each other and uh, these other things, I think it really, as uh, Daniel Kaufman said, uh, a professor at the University of Missouri, you'd have thought we'd at least have tested these things before we let them go out there. Yes, no doubt. I don't have much good to say about social media either. I mean, the challenge, of course, is how do you put the genie 
back in the bottle now that it's out. And I can certainly see when you have all these perverse incentives, if you're one of the controllers, having a lot of controllable people is, is definitely a thing that you want. I guess uh, we've been pretty pessimistic through all this, Stuart. I kind of want to uh, sort of tie it off by asking, because at, at the end of your piece, you wrote how you were sounding a cultural alarm bell, probably been ringing loud and clear. Is there anything that you see as a sort of practical thing that people can do to sort of swim against this current and get us back to a place where we can maybe just try and have reasonable disagreements again, rather than trying to cancel and destroy the livelihoods of, of people that we disagree with? I don't think there's any sort of magic bullet. I think we just have to try and live as though we're not under these restrictions. I think that is the best form of protest we can engage in, because as I say, this is a volunteer-run operation. People don't understand that in original McCarthyism, most of the people who lost their jobs, lost their families, lost their livelihoods, lost their careers, were people the federal government had never heard of. They were people who were canceled by their neighbors and their shop stewards and people like that at work. So I think it's really important to simply opt out of that system, to refuse to participate, to act in a way that is uh, culturally accepting, culturally nurturing. I think that the next time people move, they should try moving into a geographic community that votes a different way than they do. That's a very good way of rehumanizing people. It certainly did me a world of good living in, um, I mean, the neighborhood had decided the election for the NDP in 1996, but today Northern Prince George is understood to be as conservative as it gets. And that made a big difference for me. Similarly, associations, pre-existing forms of association uh, that uh, existed before social media, you know, these are things that we need to invest in more in our communities, being involved in churches, fraternal organizations, neighborhood organizations, things that are organized based on along non-ideological lines that are inclusive of people, because I don't see any sort of political magic bullet for this thing right now. Because of the knowledge that it's cultural, we all have power to affect culture, and we can all engage in, in cultural change at our own level by um, simply re-entering dialogue with people we've thought ourselves politically opposed to. Yeah, that sounds like good advice. And I think it's intuitive to think that part of the reason that social media leads to people getting quick to anger and sort of quick to dehumanize people is because there is no human element. It's synonymous words on a screen. Often there's not even a name or a picture, but the things you're talking about, the sort of real life institutions, you know, if you have to work with or live, live by or play a sport with or play a game with people who have different views than you, you may be not so quick to treat them as if they're not a human being because you have a disagreement about a, a political issue. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the great ironies is that by making everything political, we're actually depoliticizing the population because getting people fired isn't politics. Getting people evicted isn't politics. The blacklist is the opposite of politics. Politics is collectively coming together to do things for the collective that produce shared outcomes, that produce common outcomes, 
What we're really seeing here is the depoliticization of politics itself. And real politics is not about enforcing some form of purity. It's stacking the most diverse group of people together possible so you can stack the most people together so that you can produce a political outcome in a democracy. Yeah, no, these are wise words. Uh, Stuart, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. And I'd like to thank uh, everyone for tuning in to Pod Bless Canada this week. And we'll catch you at the next episode.